guys, Jim Cox, and I'm here today with a uh, interview with Margaret Klein Solomon. Um, she is the executive director of the Climate Mobilization and uh, is a climate activist. And we had connected on uh, on LinkedIn and and Facebook, and just doing amazing work in terms of trying to keep the uh, climate crisis in uh, focus given all the chaos that we see today in the uh, in the country so margaret thanks for taking the time to chat today thanks for having me awesome so tell us a little bit about yourself how did you get into working in terms of uh, climate change so i studied anthropology in college at harvard and then i got my phd in clinical psychology very shortly after that um, in, in New York at Delphi University. And while I was in New York, uh, you know, studying to be a, getting my PhD and, you know, practicing psychology as a trainee, I was becoming more and more alarmed about the climate emergency. It went from kind of a, a nagging feeling um, of, of worry to, and it just was growing into like a bright light flashing in my face. Mm -hmm. And at first I thought I will see patients in the morning and write about climate in the afternoon. That's what I was thinking, writing. You know, I'm an academic. Um, but then a good friend of mine said to me, discourse isn't enough, don't start a blog, think what could you do to actually solve this crisis? And it was like my head exploded mm. because I had never thought, oh, try to actually solve this. I, it's just so huge and uh, like, yeah, I mean, I, I just never thought of myself that way. But, but since he threw that gauntlet, I, I realized I had never wanted anything more than to do whatever I could to uh, protect humanity and the living world and myself and my family from this uh, absolute catastrophe that we are careening towards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but the, the challenge is that it's such an abstract thing, right? It's, it's kind of this amorphous threat that's hanging out there, but I think people have a real challenge kind of sticking, like coming up with a firm vision of what to do or how to do it. Absolutely. The, in terms of conceptualizing the emergency itself, what has been very helpful to me is Lester Brown's work mm. uh, on how food shortages could cause the collapse of civilization. Uh, because there's so much going on with climate, you know, with floods and superstorms and uh, tropical diseases going north, and it's kind of hard to <laughs> hard to see how it all adds up. But Lester Brown gives us very clear narrative: droughts cause food shortages. Food shortages cause uh, migration because people, you know, subsistence farmers don't just uh, stay on their land if they can't make a living yeah. there so uh and then you know mass migration is destabilizing and um so so and it inflames existing political uh, religious ethnic tensions this is this is what we saw in syria 
exactly. Yeah. yeah, I was just going to say that. That's exactly, that was the first inning of seeing the real-life, you know, uh, impacts of how that whole process unwinds. Yes. So understanding that drought, food shortages, migration, and then destabilization, and, you know, what, like in Syria, what ends up killing the most number of people is not, the like, the first order effects yeah. of the drought. It's the, it's the impact that, you know, resource scarcity and war and mass migration, again, it, it's, it, the Pentagon calls it a threat multiplier. And so, anyway, that, that has been very helpful to me. But you also raised the issue of people don't know what to do. Yeah. They, don't, they don't know how to effectively create change, which, yeah. I, which I think is absolutely true and so I, this is this is the, the guidance that I would like to offer on that uh, point uh, one is to recognize that we need political transformation and social transformation not individual consumer purification okay so if you are trying to respond to climate in terms of what you buy uh, that is not enough. I, that that is just not politics, right? Uh, solar panels and electric car and uh, you know it's all it's all fine. It's all it's all good. I do some of those things, um, but but again, it's it's not going to protect humanity in the living world. The only thing that can do that is a transformation that happens on the social and political level through a social movement, and we're, we're seeing this, I mean, you know, in real time, the Black Lives Matter movement, which has really uh, ignited, is, you know, this mass uprising mm-hmm. uh, creates tremendous change, and fast, it's a, uh, so, so, and it's not, ju- it's not just about protest, though that's critically important, but also about uh, uh, voting and running candidates and getting pressuring candidates to advocate, again, for transformative and emergency response to the climate as opposed to gradualism, mm-hmm. which has been the paradigm of the Democratic Party and the, the, you know, the big green NGOs and the kind of mainstream climate movement for the past 30 years. Yeah, and we, and do, we don't have time for gradualism, right? Absolutely. It's a failed paradigm. Yeah. Zero emissions by 2050 is suicidal. Carbon pricing as the primary uh, mechanism of change is suicidal. I, I, I propose a bright line for evaluating politicians and uh, environmental groups and, and how you think about your participation, which is if they are advocating something that is fully me- implemented would not prevent the collapse of civilization, it's not worth spending your time and money supporting. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we, like the, the, the theory of change that, you know, we're going to take one step and then we'll take another step and politics is the art of the possible and we need to be bipartisan and all of that. I, I mean, it's, I, it's just failed. We've tried it for decades. Carbon emissions have gone up every year. I, I wish it worked. Yeah, yeah, and actually, and actually, with um, 
One of the uh, things that is surprising is even with the economic slowdown that we've experienced worldwide with the uh, pandemic, um, I saw that last month the CO2 level reached a, a new high in the uh, Mauna Loa Observatory. So it's it's like even with that kind of a shutdown, it doesn't stop right away. It's like it takes a long time for that boat to turn around. Yeah, and, and let's think about that as like the ultimate failure of the individual action uh, theory of change, you know, hypothesis, which of course the fossil fuel industry has actively encouraged, uh, you know, that we all share responsibility because of the fuel that we use. Um, so, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, so I, for, for myself, I didn't do much except I, I didn't leave my house that much in the past several months. You know, so, uh, people haven't been flying, they haven't been driving nearly as much, they haven't, you know, the economy and people's lives have been very constrained. And one and, and if individual action was the end-all, be-all of climate, then we should have seen drastic drops in emissions, but we didn't because it's not an individual issue, it's a systems issue. Hmm. So is it a matter of the actual economic system needs to be changed, or is it a matter of the politicians need to work within the economic system to change the rules in which it works? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so the Climate Mobilization, the organization that I founded, looks a lot at the example of World War II, and not merely as a kind of heroic rallying cry, though it is that as well, but, but in terms of how they actually did it, how they actually transformed our economy from a consumer economy to a war economy that shattered all of the, all industrial production expectations, uh, just innovation in every sector, all hands on deck participation in the U.S. I, I mean, you know, 40% of American vegetables grown in victory gardens, just this shocking transformation of, of every corner of society and the economy. And they did that through uh, a lot more centralized economic planning towards a common mission, the, you know, the need to win the war. They used command and control legislation, not just market nudges, such as uh, banning the sale of consumer automobiles so that the entire automotive industrial capacity of this country could be used to make tanks and planes and ships. And so, so the relationship between the government and the economy uh, was very different, certainly very different to what we have now, which has been, you know, neoliberalism has been the dominant, you know, the, the government very weak, very, uh, the, you know, the corporations and business very much in the, in the driver's seat. Um, and, and then also massive investment and, and uh, deficit spending, taxation increased, especially on the highest earners and corporate profits. And so it's, um, 
So there was a major increase, major, in terms of government uh, involvement. And, and clearly, during the mobilization, the federal government and the, the War Production Board and so forth were like running the economy. Uh, but that is not to say that business was uh, screwed or not, not involved. Quite, quite the contrary. Business uh, and, and government partnered and, and labor partnered to, to do this. There, it, it, couldn't have, it couldn't have been done otherwise. Yeah. So, you know, the government gave uh, cost plus profit contracts that they would cover the cost of like a factory expansion, for example, and and yeah, cover cover the company's costs and give them a set profit for um, you know completing the necessary uh, manufacturing. So this takes so a this think? takes a major shift in people's thinking, though, because the, what you run into is you know society's divided into thirds. You know, there's like the third a third progressive, a third conservative, and a third that are in the middle and just either don't care or are unmotivated. But, you know, from the right, it you end up being accused of being a communist or a socialist, and, like, sure. that carries baggage that's been, like, thrust upon us for, you know, generations, which has been completely kind of misappropriated in terms of what it actually means you know any sort it's become any sort of change is evil when in fact right, we need change yeah. For the public good. yeah exactly exactly anything for the public good is viewed as a negative and that externalities don't matter and in reality it's the externalities that are in the long run that's going to kill the society Yeah. 
Well, I mean, the reality is we're going into a time of economic crisis, which, like, you know, the 1930s, brought that middle together with kind of the forces of progressivism um, to actually create that kind of real change. So maybe that's the opportunity. Absolutely. And, and again, collective, collective awakening. I, so before the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, America was deeply in denial yeah. about, uh, about the dangers posed by the Axis powers. America first was the slogan. And, uh, you know, they, we did not want to get involved in a foreign war. That was how it was viewed. And it was, but after the attack, attack on Pearl Harbor, there was a, a, just a total shift in understanding that, you know, we this wasn't a choice. <laughs> of course we would want to stay out of it. Of course, of course we'd rather not transform our economy and society uh, at, at emergency speed and, you know, not, not face this reality. But uh, seriously, I don't, I mean, I don't see a credible other choice. Yeah. Um, so what, what's the psychological basis of like people's apathy? Like, is it, is there a, a psychological process that can be identified? And if so, how do you undo that psychological process? Yeah, I'd say there's two things. Um, helplessness, the feeling of helplessness and overwhelm, and then also the concept of pluralistic ignorance, which is a social psychological concept that humans evaluate risk and danger socially, not rationally. Mm. So in a situation, uh, for example, if there's a room is filling with smoke, um, if everyone is acting normal, uh, people will just sit there and, and, and yeah, and just assume that the group must be right. They must know something I don't. Um, hmm. In in situations where there may be danger, um, people look to each other to to see. And if and if other people are scared, then I'm scared and taking it seriously. So, so this is happening on a mass scale, this pluralist, pluralistic ignorance that, that we're looking to each other and it seems like people are acting normal just merely by carrying on with their lives and making plans for the future and, you know, planning their careers and their families and their retirements and just through... Yes, merely through acting normal, we are contributing to the facade of normalcy rather than emergency. So this, I think it's very, very important to understand this concept because it also help, mitigates the feeling of helplessness because the thing about pluralistic ignorance is it can very easily be flipped around, right? Like, so again, if you're back in that room that's filling up with smoke, but everyone's acting normal, all it takes is one 
trip. To say, holy shit, guys, look at that smoke. And suddenly, everyone's behavior changes on a dime. Now we can see it. Because that person who's raising the alarm is a leader. Mm. And they are alerting the group to this fact. And so, so just start talking about it. Start mm. talking about the climate emergency with friends and family and neighbors and colleagues. Hmm. What, what, um, what impact does race or class have on kind of the, the climate crisis? I mean, you look at, you look at like what's going, there's a whole conversation about, you know, well, the third world has to cut their emissions and we've already cut ours. So, you know, they have to do more and yet they're trying to you know, raise their standard of living. So there's a whole issue of race and class, you know, not just here, but globally, that no, kind of plays and, into it. Yeah, absolutely. How much time do you have? Well, right? Like, this, is, this is a huge question, um, but I can, I can make some kind of general statements. Um, it, is, it is a, a horrible and such an unfair thing that that the countries and people who are getting hammered first and, and worst, uh, or you know what, actually, let's just say first, because this is coming for all of us, um, but is are in the global south. I, I mean, we're talking about uh, countries near the equator and uh, Bangladesh and uh, Pacific Islands, right? These are these are low-emitting countries that are um, Syria uh, that are really on the front lines. And the argument that they need to keep emitting to, to economically develop is so ghoulish. Um, I, I mean, yeah, it's like developing straight into the grave. I, I mean, we need to end fossil fuel use, period. But, I mean, that's not a really negotiable position. Like, I, I don't make the rules, but CO2, people, this is like a really important misconception that people have about physics, is that if we reduce emissions, that like that's a win. But unfortunately, as long as we are above zero, emissions, the level of uh, carbon in the atmosphere is going up, right? Like the metaphor of an overflowing bathtub that, uh, and you have water all over the floor, that the idea of turning down the water pressure, right, turning the tap lower, no, that's not what you need. You need to turn the water off and start cleaning up your floor, <laughs> right? So... We, I mean, there's absolutely a debt that the that the so-called developed world has to the developing world. I think I think we should definitely do um, debt forgiveness based on uh, based on this core inequality that I'm talking about. I think that uh, yeah, I think that we need the the wealthy countries need to invest in poor countries to help them 
reach zero emissions as quickly as possible and and also regenerative agriculture and and regenerate their ecosystems i i mean one thing okay so yeah that's one point i it's also it's also i also want to just talk about like the hierarchy of needs and the idea of responsibility there are I, I mean, the United States is so unequal. I, I, I don't know exactly what the percentage is, but a lot of people are living in poverty and economic precarity. A lot. And it is not exactly fair. If, if, you, if you are poor, if you are literally not sure if you're going to be evicted that, the next month, it is understandable that you would be very focused on your immediate existential emergency and not really be able to focus and and engage in political activism for an emergency that is in the future, even if you really care about it. Um, so for the... So I, I think it's important to realize that with great privilege comes great responsibility. Those of us who are lucky enough and blessed enough to have the time and uh, yeah, capacity to join this movement and really take really in, in, invest uh, your life in it and, and resources, financial resources. I, I, just, I feel it's a moral obligation. Yeah. Yeah. I, one of the challenges, I think you, you mentioned that the richer countries need to um, invest in um, the developing countries. And I agree with that. The challenge is we're entering, and I think we, I would say we've been in an era of deflation for the past 10 years, and it's only going to get worse with what's developed over the past year. And in that kind of an environment, you know, investing overseas or in others drops to the bottom of the uh, priority list. So it really takes a a new way of thinking to be able to get to the place where we were able to do that, recognizing kind of the reality of what we're, where we're currently at. And, and a government that creates a regulatory apparatus that understands that reaching zero emissions is as quickly as possible and negative emissions drawdown is the most important goal. And I can't, I'm, I'm not an economist, I, I cannot talk about how those, those rules would be configured in order to, to achieve that. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it, I know for sure that our, uh, the current incentives of our financial markets are uh, to destroy ecosystems and uh, the atmosphere, yeah. not to protect them and heal them but it does seem like it could be possible with a different with a transformative 
reformed regulatory structure. Do you agree? I do, I do, and I really think that that regulatory structure and enforcement and I think proper valuation of those externalities is really key because, um, you know, corporations have been given carte blanche for decades and, you know, it's, we're paying the price for what's happened and the, the reality is all of these you know, it's considered that the market is an efficient mechanism for allocating resources, but the reality is that the the regulations have made it an inefficient uh, mechanism because certain things are not paid attention to, whereas others are, you know, actively promoted, like fossil fuels. So, you know, we we need to change the market to where it does value the things that need to be, um, you know, paid attention to. Absolutely. What role does um, does socially responsible investing play in, in your view of what needs to happen? That's a great question. I'm not, I'm not sure. It's not, it's honestly not a world that I'm, terribly familiar with. I I will say this, though. I've met a fair amount of people who view their socially responsible investing as their kind of participation in the movement. And I do think that is insufficient. I'm especially (laughs) referring to kind of... as a, as a director of an organization, I'm a fundraiser, right? I need to uh, bottom line the organization. So talking to people, you know, kind of feeling out the possibility of whether they would consider donating. And I've just come up across this idea, well, you know, I, I like to do socially responsible investing, which does good and earns a return. And so I, I feel that, yeah, I feel that that's not enough Um I, yeah, I think direct support for transformative change through um, yeah, funding social movement organizations, funding policy development organizations and think tanks that are truly visionary and on the on the vanguard, not not uh, creating more gradualist, you know, uh, cap and trade schemes, um, and and also funding politicians who. Uh, carry a climate emergency uh, transformation message. Um, yeah, so I am I'm glad that people are pursuing socially responsible investing rather than <laughs> conventional socially irresponsible investing. And I do think that it that it. I mean, basically, I think that that kind of thing is creating the prototypes for what, through a mobilization, we need to drastically scale up. Like, there's so many solutions to climate, you know? What's about... And wind, and biking, and uh, biochar. And And they're there, but only the government can put in the level of investment and 
you know, change the laws and regulatory structure. So, yeah, so I, I, I hope that people uh, who have the means to do socially responsible investing would also do, would also commit to directly supporting the system's transformation yeah. that we need without yeah. uh, financial returns. Well, I mean, the reality is it's about managing risk. And, you know, the work that I do, you know, the portfolios have no fossil fuels at all. So, and... You must look pretty smart these days. Yeah, yeah. But that's the thing is if you see the risk and you pay attention to the risk and you avoid the risk, you know, there is a positive payoff. And more and more people are seeing that. But it, it becomes a matter of as you literally see funds drain out of fossil fuel companies, you see the desperation that they have to try to find new sources and they're flailing about. Um, So, I mean, definitely I think it plays a role in terms of pushing um, away from fossil fuels and towards renewables, which obviously is essential um, in order for us to get to where we need to go. fuel companies is great <laughs> um, but I, I just I, talking about risk uh, there's financial risk and there's existential risk and we need to keep the relative value and risk of each of those in, in mind I think people, investors are so attuned to financial risk but uh, David Spratt in Australia has done such excellent work on just the bizarre way that we evaluate risk in climate compared to any other situation. Like, for example, the the IPCC reports that talk about, oh, we can admit we have this carbon budget for this uh, level of degree rise, this, this carbon budget for two degrees, for example. They're measuring that at a 50%. This is the carbon budget that will give us a 50% chance of staying under two degrees. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really bizarre. Like, two degrees is way too high, terribly dangerous. Yeah. But if the IPCC is saying that's the number, that's the safe number, but we're, we're going to give ourselves only a 50% chance of staying under that? I, I mean, it's... That's like driving a car. That's like driving a car, going out, driving a car, and saying... You have a fifty percent chance of making it home alive. Like, yeah, are you going to take that ride to the store? No, that's crazy. We would never accept this level of risk yeah. in any other sphere. So, so I just encourage your listeners, who I assume are, you know, are really keen on financial risk, to to, to check out David Spratt's work and just in general to start thinking about. Um, thinking about that uh, it's, it's like it's like in the, the big short and the housing market collapse that there is an impending risk here that's actually not even a uh, probability it's, it's really a certainty um, unless we have this transformative change uh, that, that there's going to be an ecological collapse <laughs> it's like really not priced into um, for economic forecasts right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a huge amount of uh, cognitive dissonance going on. What, um, 
one of the things that I wanted to do, if you don't mind, I'd like to read uh, the prologue to your book, uh, Facing the Climate Emergency, because I think it really, um, it was kind of a smack in the face, and I think that a lot of people could uh, use to hear it. So do you mind if I, do you mind if I read that? All right, hold on for a second. So the link for the book will be in the uh, will be in the description of the uh, podcast. And so there's the, also there's also a chapter available for free at facingtheclimateemergency.com. Uh, so you can check it out. It's a self-help book for uh, reckoning with the climate emergency and turning the emotional pain you feel into effective action. So that's obviously a kind of a new genre. So you can check out that chapter. Cool. Uh, before you commit. Cool. So here we go. Prologue. Did you know you have a calling, an epic calling, a heroic calling? It's probably grander than anything you had let yourself imagine outside of your dreams. You are supposed to save the world. That's why you are here, alive in this time of great consequence. We, humanity, are putting together a team of heroes to cancel the apocalypse, to protect ourselves in the natural world from catastrophic collapse. You might not realize it, but you are on the roster. Your jersey is sitting in your locker. We need to figure out your position and get you into emotional shape. The first step is to show up to practice. We're waiting for you. Unlike most self-help guides, my goal is not to make you happy and it's not to, make, not to help you avoid the pain. This is not about feeling good or finding satisfaction, though these will likely be side effects of fully embracing your mission and living in climate truth. My goal is to help you maximize your potential to meet the greatest challenge humanity has ever faced. I will show you how to face your pain with courage and vulnerability and let it motivate you to become the most effective climate warrior you can be. There's no time to waste. Let's get started. I, um, I just thought that was such a, a brilliant description of what's been missing. There's this you know, I, I think about, like, when I was growing up in the 80s, you know, one of the things that I, and I've thought about this a lot recently, uh, I really learned to write and learned to speak, I think, from listening to the speeches of people like JFK and Adlai Stevenson, and, you know, obviously it's the nerd in me, but, you know, there was, there was kind of a classic... Um, background of calling, um, of, of people answering a call to do something heroic that they're called to do. And it seems like over the past 30, 40 years, we've lost that, you know, in terms of when you, when you talk to people, you just don't get that sense of that they, they've had that same experience, that same common experience. Because I would say, like, in, in the 70s and 80s, maybe not after that, but before that, you know, there was commonality in that kind of an outlook. Like, is that kind of your take, or am I kind of alone in that? No, I mean, I, um, I wasn't alive 
Um, so I, I can't say with, with confidence, but it sure, it, yeah, it sure does jive with my uh, reading of kind of social and generational history. And that we're, I mean, yeah, just more and more uh, in this country, we, we've gone towards consumerism, uh, hedonism, uh, me first, gotta, gotta get mine, um, and away from the idea of responsibilities. Yeah. I, I, this, this sounds, <laughs> I worry this sounds a little cheesy, but I, I really feel it's time for a, a bill of responsibilities, um, not, not just a bill of rights, um, for, for this country and for, or, or even, yeah, like, you know, we have a declaration of human rights, which is great, but what about, what about human responsibilities? And I, I think, I think we all have a responsibility to protect life. And in this moment, that means a dramatic emergency intervention. I agree. I agree. Um, so I'll put the link in the, uh, in the description, but if somebody wants to follow up and contact you, how can they reach out to you, or do you have a website? Uh, so, theclimatemobilization.org is my the organization's website, so that is the place for, if you're interested in organizing, getting your community to, to declare a climate emergency, and moving on from there to... Uh, take this kind of transformative action at the local level. Um, Ann Arbor, Michigan just uh, declared a climate emergency and announced a $1 billion plan to reach zero emissions by 2030, which is extremely ambitious for a city of that size. So that is very exciting. And, and they're moving forward with it aggressively during the coronavirus, which mm. I'm also very impressed by. Um, so, yeah, if you're interested in bringing that kind of local action to your community or joining an existing effort, that's the climatemobilization.org. Yeah, for the book, facing the facing the climate emergency um, and yeah, I, I'm on Twitter at climate psych, or or I'm on LinkedIn. So yeah, you can say hi. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Um, thanks again for taking the time to uh, chat, and um, I think we'll have to do some more shows in the future if that's okay with you. Uh, this was a great conversation, and I'd be happy to. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Margaret, and I'll talk to you soon.